So if you don't know me, my name is Gunnar Inke Gunnarsson. Uh, I'm one of the two pastors here, me and, and Elliot, pastor here at Lostovan. Uh, if you were with us last week, you got to know Elliot, who preached through the middle of the book of Acts, chapter 8. Now, what we do as a church is typically, with some exceptions, we work our way through the books of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, we're about seven years in, and I think we're 10 books in, so that's a slow pace. There's plenty of material left. Don't be anxious. Um, but we're going to be jumping back into the, the, the book of Acts, chapter 8, and we're going to be dwelling in verses 26 through 40 to finish off that chapter. Now, if you don't know how to find that in your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to the person next to you. Uh, it's relatively early on in the New Testament after the Gospels. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, what, what I want to do is just read through the passage. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, you can just either grab one back there or you can follow with us on the screen. Now, last week, Elliot talked about Philip who was a deacon in the early church, and we actually still follow what Philip the deacon is doing today. But we left off where Philip was located in a city in Samaria where God was doing amazing things. Huge crowds of people were becoming Christians. Racial tensions that had existed between the Samaritans and the Jewish people uh, were literally, they had fought wars against each other when the Greeks attacked the Jews, the Samaritans joined the Greeks, and that, that had been going on for 700 years. Just imagine that. Imagine like what that tells you about the Bible. Like for instance, when Jesus does the parable of the Good Samaritan, in the Jewish mind, there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. They were hated, they were despised, that people would actively seek to not have to go through Samaria. They would walk an extra day or two to walk around the people that they hated to get to another town. And so when, when even Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria, that was the shortest route, but it was the route that no Jewish teacher would ever take. Right, so the gospel comes into Samaria and the gospel starts affecting people so that their hatred for one another is triumphed by the love of God and, and, and his mercy and his grace. All of a sudden, these people who previously had hated each other and had 700 years of history to, to have a reason to be skeptical of one another, afraid of one another, all of a sudden that disappears in light of we all love Jesus. That is more important than any earthly king, any earthly city we belong to. Ultimately, we belong to the kingdom of God. And that's an amazing thing to see happen. It gives me hope for today. There's a lot of tensions for today and a lot of history and, and historical wounds with those tensions. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, here, here we see one of those tensions being released, and it was through the grace of the good news of Jesus going out and Jesus being king over us all. Now, in the middle of this, God decides to do what I think no human strategist would decide to do. He decides when the huge crowds of people are coming to faith, everything seems to be flourishing, going awesomely in general. Awesomely, is that a word? Yeah, that's, that's my word now at least. Uh, everything seems to be going awesome. God decides to take what seems to be the main guy in all of this, Philip, and remove him from that scenario when they're at the peak of their ministry, when everything is going really, really well. And I, I suspect that if you were a human strategist, you would be looking at things like, Thousands are coming to faith. 
you know, 700 years of racial tensions is beginning to loosen. Let's just keep doing what we're doing right now. Let's copy and paste this as long as we can go and see what happens. But God decides to remove Philip out of that scenario. Um, and in the midst of this awesome revival taking place and, and things generally going awesome, he decides to remove him and send him. At, well, well, he has an odd request. So let's just jump into our text today. The first... Um, the first verse that we have is verse 26. And it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to, to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, if you've ever been there, like it's not a desert place as you would typically think of the Sahara Desert or anything like that. A desert place in the Bible usually means deserted place. That there is, it's not just sand, but there's no person there. No one lives there. No one travels through there because there's nothing happening. So an angel of the Lord appears to Philip. He's telling him to rise up and go to the road uh, to Gaza. There are two main roads that you could have taken. He tells him to take the, the road less traveled uh, and less populated. Now, after being surrounded by huge crowds and, and seeing mass repentance take place, he's all of a sudden finding himself on a road walking by himself. And I, I, I for one, would possibly be thinking, what did I do wrong? Like, why is God punishing me in this way? Why is he demoting me in this way? I was a part of this awesome thing happening in Samaria. All of a sudden, there's no one around. Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? God, why do you hate me? You know, possibly thinking all these like sinful thoughts, right? But humanly speaking, this must feel like a little bit of a demotion. From a busy city to an empty street, to a bunch of people repenting and turning to God, to all of a sudden no one being around him. But I love Philip here that he's just obedient to the call of God. Ultimately, he realizes that this ministry is not about him. It's not about his platform. It's not about his success. Ultimately, this is about God moving in him and through him and in and among his people. And all of a sudden he says, okay, I will go down this road where no one goes down and see what God has in store for me. So he ups and leaves. And we pick up in verses 27 through 29. And it says, he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, a few things that are just odd and interesting about this text. Uh, first off, the Ethiopian in this text has probably just experienced such a great spectrum of human emotions. Number one, he's highly esteemed. He is highly, you know, he's highly regarded. He is a court official. He's a servant of the queen. So I'm guessing he's pretty used to being revered and respected. And at the same time, he's eunuch. His genitals have been cut off. And I imagine there are social implications there where he has been reviled and rejected and looked upon with disgust. And so, like, he's, he's going through these through life having experienced probably the spectrum of human emotions from being respected, you know, for his friendship, from being, you know, despised. 
So this guy, you know, just judging from his chariot, you probably know that he's wealthy. He's an esteemed fellow. And yet God tells Philip, go over and join this chariot. And I'm, you know, I'm guessing if I'm Philip in this scenario, I can start thinking of multiple reasons why maybe I shouldn't. And if I'm in this town, I'm, I'm, I could be easily in, intimidated by the wealth and the power just seen in the chariot itself. Who am I to go interrupt this guy? He doesn't know me. Like, why, why should he listen to me? I'm just a random guy on the street. Uh, from that to uh, basically thinking, oh, well, he's a foreigner. Like, we're here to reach Jews, right? We're here to reach the people of Israel. And so maybe I shouldn't go and tell him about anything. He can basically decide to view people as big and God as small. He can let the fear of people dictate what he does instead of the fear and respect that he has for God to dictate what he does and says. But God is calling him to basically copy the ministry of Jesus, which is the main point of our sermon today, which is we as disciples of Jesus Christ were called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Number one, by being ready to draw near even to those who pull away from us. Number two, to offer answers to questions that they're asking. And number three, to show how good the good news of Jesus applies to their lives. Now, Philip here is looking at the incarnational ministry of Jesus, seeing that Jesus made it a point not only to say, come to me, which he did. So I'm not, I'm not wanting to say that he didn't say those things. But really, as the Bible tells us, for instance, we love God because God first loved us. And the story of the Bible is not mankind chasing after God and God running away. Ever, ever since the garden, you see, as soon as Adam and Eve fell, what has the game been? It's been God saying, where are you? And then we hiding from him. And ever since then, the story of the Bible has been God moving closer and closer to his people from all of a sudden, well, hiding them in their shame, sacrificing an innocent animal so that they can cover their nakedness uh, in their skin, right? Pointing to Jesus right away in Genesis 3, to all of a sudden saying to people, you're going to be my people, I'm going to dwell among you. His presence leading them out of Egypt in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. All of a sudden saying, build me a tabernacle, I will be among you. And then obviously in Jesus being even closer to us, God incarnate walking among us to now today where the promise of God, no, I'm not going to be just among my people. I'm going to be in my people. I'm going to give them my spirit. And so the story of the Bible has always been mankind fleeing and God approaching. So Philip here may be looking at the incarnational ministry of Jesus, saying he took on flesh to approach me seeing that Jesus made it a point not only to call people to himself, but he made that available by approaching them first. He made it happen by being the one who made the first move towards them. And our ministry as Christians, that term may you know, be diluted by now, watered down. You know, there's so many people who use that title. But our ministry as followers of Jesus is to follow in his footsteps. And what did, what did Jesus do? He approached people. And yeah, there were times where he, he would speak truth and it seems harsh. Most of the time though, when you, when you realize the context of that happening, that's Jesus being harsh towards religious leaders who are leading people astray. 
towards the sinners, towards the needy, towards the downtrodden, he approached them. And Philip, maybe looking at Jesus, remembering the ministry of his master, asking himself, Jesus approached me, now who am I called to approach and how am I called to approach them? Think about John, for instance, 1.14, where it says that the word came and it dwelt among us. That phrase, if you would literally translate that from the Greek, it, the, that phrase would mean tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. It's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the word being with God, being God, coming, taking on flesh to dwell among us. Who are we called to tabernacle among? Who are we called to pitch our tent among? We see that here in the ministry of, uh, of Philip. How do we view our ministry, for instance? Right, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, is, is it mostly about getting our message across? Is it mostly just screaming out truths that we have, and they are truths, so I don't want to minimize that? Or is it also to approach, to be physically there? Like I was talking to a pastor this week, and he was talking about the difficulty of pastoring our church in our modern day and age. And, and just the, what, what is basically a new problem to have. There are ministries out there that are awesome ministries, right? And there are millions of people who listen to those people. And they, they, for instance, when it came to this COVID crisis, there are multiple big name preachers that have totally different views on how to handle this. Should you shut down your service? Should you stand up against the government? You know, so on and so forth. And then you have people who, basically you can listen to nine hours of sermons by some people somewhere else in the world and then all of a sudden you meet on Sundays and then you have the expectations of your people being influenced by a bunch of ministries that you know nothing about. You don't know who's preaching to them. You don't know what, you know, what sermons they're listening to and so on and so forth. But here with Philip, He's called to be there. That's, that's a part of his ministry. And we were talking, this pastor is like, one of the unique things that we have in a, in a digital world where, yeah, there's a lot of material online. There's a lot of truth being spoken and broadcasted out there. One of the unique things that we have to do is just to be there for people, to be among people, to rejoice with the one who rejoices, to weep with those who weep, to, to be close enough to hear the questions that they have, the concerns that they have. Right? And I think, I think about this verse in Romans 10, 13 to 15. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. And then he says, but how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of feet. One of the last things I think of is beautiful, right? But here, the, the Roman, uh, the Paul in Romans is telling us how beautiful are the feet of those because they're bringing good news physically there. Like in, a, in, a, in an age, in day and age, where there is a bunch of information available to reach a people, I don't think we need more information. 
I don't think we just need to be screaming out the message that we have in the, the noise of just the 21st century. We need to be there as Philip is. Now let's see how Philip responds to God telling him to chase down this chariot and be there. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? Yet again, we, we face the uniqueness of this Ethiopian brother. Right? He is living in Ethiopia, yet worshiping the God of Israel. That has got to be unique. So like, I wonder not only why that is, but also possibly the further exclusion that he's experienced, not only being a eunuch, possibly a social outcast because of that, but also the societal exclusion that he has experienced for worshiping what is basically a foreign god. I imagine there are not a lot of Jewish converts in Ethiopia at this time, but here is a random Ethiopian eunuch, a servant of the queen, reading Isaiah. Now, I, I, I've been thinking about like, how, how could this happen? Like, I, I, the only thing I could think of was the story in the Old Testament. You remember Queen Sheba? Uh, coming, approaching Solomon and wanting to see his wisdom in person in first, uh, Second Chronicles 9 and, and First Kings 10. And it says that she came all the way from Ethiopia, which is basically modern-day Sudan, where it is right now. That would have been considered part of Ethiopia. <clears throat> she comes to Solomon. She has questions that she's been asking herself for a while. She approaches Solomon with those questions and gets her answers. And what she does in, in verses, verse 8 in 2 Chronicles 9, she starts worshiping or praising and blessing the God of Israel. And she starts blessing Israel for having Solomon as a king and for God blessing Israel with a good king like Solomon. And she goes back. And I have to wonder, I mean, granted, this is 900 years removed from Philip. So this is a long, long time before Philip is there talking to this Ethiopian eunuch. But I wonder... What happened after that story? We don't know much more about the queen from Ethiopia, but maybe she went back. Maybe through her testimony, a subcategory of Ethiopians became worshipers of the God of Israel. And here we are, 900 years removed from that event, and all of a sudden Philip is meeting a random person from Ethiopia due to a quest, uh, testimony of, of Queen Sheba. All of us, you know, this is obviously a lot of speculation, but I, I can't help but wonder like possibly the chain of events, the chain of events we could be a part of right now. Like how did this brother hear about Isaiah? Why is he in Jerusalem to worship? He's obviously, he's traveled hundreds of kilometers to be there. He, he's bought a, a scroll of scripture, which is super expensive at the time and really hard to get. So he's obviously pulled a lot of things together to make this happen. So who knows? Who knows what, what story we're a part of right now? That, that's what excites me about the future of Iceland. What foundations can we be laying right now that we don't even know about? 
But anyways, here we see the first way that Philip imitates the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't wait for the eunuch to approach him, but the text says he ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah. Just like his master, he chased down uh, this random guy in this random chariot. Just like his master, Jesus, he's ready to speak the truth if you'll only get the opportunity. You see him asking this leading question, do you know what you're reading? He's obviously not bought into the idea of not cramming your faith down other people's throats. You know? Hey man, keep this to yourself. Your faith is private. You know? He's not bought into this idea of just running up to random chariots. What are you reading? <laughs> do you know what you're reading? But Philip, he realized that yes, his faith may be personal, and it definitely is. Our faith is personal. When God does a work within us, it's personal. It's something that only God can truly understand and see. But at the same time, that doesn't mean our faith is private. Right? Why would he, he, Philip, why would we today not share the treasure of this life with Jesus with others? If, if D.T. Niles is right in his quote that we are all just beggars pointing other beggars to where food can be found, why would we not point other people to the feast of the kingdom of heaven? Why would we keep this to ourselves? Brothers and sisters, remember this truth. Your faith is personal, but it's not private. We are called to be ready in season and out of season to introduce people to Jesus, to live in such a way that it reflects who Jesus is. We are his ambassadors here on earth. We are representing him and his kingdom. You should know that. As as a Christian brother and sister, as as a member of this church, you are expected to be open and honest with the people around you. Like The scriptures have made it very clear that one of the major blessings of God in our lives It's the people around us right now. That God has given each and every person in here, each and every person watching, a gift to help build us up, to keep us accountable, to help us grow, to be more like God. And here, like, you may, when, when I say, you know, your faith is personal but not private, I'm saying that applies to how you link with one another in here. Like, for instance, how are we supposed to carry out the commands of Scripture, like carry one another's burdens, if we never know what burdens we truly carry? We can't even start fulfilling that Scripture. So our faith is personal, but it's not private. We are called to weep with those who weep, rejoice with the rejoicing. But how can we do that if we think that our faith and walk with God is private. And also, when it applies to people outside of this congregation, those who are maybe not Christians, your faith is personal but not private. Have you prayed for open doors like Philip is experiencing here? Like, I'm watching this, and I'm just like, man, this is a layup right here. (laughs) You're telling me he's chasing down a random chariot. Not only is he reading Isaiah the prophet, but he's reading Isaiah 53, which is like the prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus. If I was Philip, I would be like, praise God, this is awesome, I'm going to town to tell this guy about Jesus. You know, have we opened, you know, have have I approached the throne of God and just said, God, would you open up doors for me to talk about this? 
Would you make it so, like, it's, it's kind of like this, when Philip ran into the Ethiopian, it's just like this obvious thing of, oh, yeah, okay, this is a straight entry to the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus. You know, would you use me in such a way? Like, how about this week, for instance? If we make it our goal just to pray for one person, for God to move in their life, just for one person, for God to move in their life and for us to have an opportunity to show them the love of Jesus and to tell them about the love of Jesus. How about that? Just as a small step of faith, just praying constantly for this one person and seeing the power of God active in their lives and and seeking ways to lay hands on the good that he's already prepared. And how about also as members of this church, we would also make it an opportunity, basically a a commitment to deepening our relationship with one person in our church so that we can get to a spot where we can confess one another's sins to one another, that we would, because basically we're all working with a presupposition in here. We're all here because we're sinners in need of grace, right? Can I hear an amen? (laughs) We are all here with the presupposition that we're messed up. Right? When we meet each other for a week from now, we can assume everyone has messed up since last meeting. Why is it so hard for us to confess our sins to one another? What is, what is the reason? Do we not trust one another to, to take care of a piece of our heart? You know, if that's so, we need to work on our trust for one another and we need to be trustworthy individuals. But man, what if we just made this a point? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for one person to come to faith and I'm going to seek ways to show them the love of Jesus and to tell them about the love of Jesus and I'm going to approach, I'm going to, I'm going to start approaching one person in this church to deepen my relationship with them. To, to allow my faith to be personal but not private. Anyways, spent way too much time on that. Um, The Ethiopian, this, this guy is highly regarded, right? He could, he has a nice chariot, probably the Bentley of his day and age or something like that. He could easily be proud, uh, but he's humble. He's humble enough to ask to be teachable in areas that where he feels he needs to grow in. He's hungry to know more and dive into the truths of the scripture. Right? Again, there are, there are so many applications in this, in this text. Are, like one question we could be asking ourselves as we go into this week, are we humble enough to allow others to teach us? <laughs> See, Hilder's already confessing sins right here. <laughs> we'll pray for Hilder. But I think, I, I, I think, honestly, that's probably, that should be all of us right there. I think there are areas in our lives where we are proud and we don't want to listen because we think we're right. But are we really willing to listen to other people that God has placed in our life to teach us? Are we willing to ask questions? Not just to be known as the guy with all the answers, but also the, the guy or the girl with the questions. To listen to, to loving, godly, and wise counsel. And like, like I said earlier, it just so happens to be that he's reading Isaiah 53, one of the clearest prophecies about Jesus and his work on the cross. Now, I bet Philip just went, in to, went to town telling him about how this applies to Jesus. 
How he's the one who is the righteous one who's dying for the trespass of others. How he's the righteous one being murdered by the crowd. How God has prophesied about Jesus before his coming, hundreds of years before, and Jesus hung on the cross. He was the one who was pierced through on his feet and his hands due to our sin so that we could stand before God clean because he has cleansed us by his blood and he's covered the debt that we couldn't pay. Now, first of all, I wonder how often Philip had prayed for an open door like this, an opportunity to preach the gospel. And I'm I'm reminded to do that myself. And secondly, I am thankful for the Ethiopian here asking good questions. Because the truth is, you can read the scripture and then you can read the scripture. Right? You can read it like your math homework and you just want to be done with it. Or you can actually dig down and dive deep. You can be the farmer who's willing to you know, plant his veggies in the ground and, and uh, you know, make, make sure they grow, but then when it comes time to harvest and actually enjoy the fruit of your labor, you kind of don't want to get your hands dirty. Or you, know, or you can be the farmer who's excited about getting his hands dirty, excited about enjoying the fruit of his labor. Which one are we? Again, I'm encouraged to ask myself, How am I doing? And not just reading through the word of God, but chewing on it, asking questions about it, praying through it, and probably most importantly, changing in light of it. And and how do we do that? Because honestly, I think we're strong in theoretical theology and maybe knowledge of the Bible for most of us in here but rather weak in many areas in implementing the truth in our daily living. Like for instance, we may know theoretically that love is patient, that love is kind, that it hopes all things, endures all things. And we also may know that if we don't have love, like 1 Corinthians tells us, if we don't have love, everything we do is meaningless. Like literally, do you, do you realize how serious that is? He says, if you, if you don't have love, doesn't matter how many sermons you preach, doesn't matter how many people you served, if you didn't love them, everything you did is meaningless. That is serious. We may, lo- we may know that theoretically. Yes and amen. Love, you know, it is the most important thing. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. I haven't found an excuse around that. Do not love people yet. So yes, I guess that is the meaning of the text. But when we take our heads out of the clouds, how good are we at just loving one another? Even just the basic type of love. Like, how good are we at calling one another up? Just calling a brother or sister, just checking on how they're doing. How good are we at being intentional about showing care for one another or praying for one another or coming over to one another's house? And I, I'm, I don't want you to feel like I'm pointing the finger out here. You know, I'm, I'm pointing at myself too. I'm being convicted by this text. This is not just some kind of extreme type of love. Oh, that is an extremely loving person to call a brother once a week. You know, this is the, the first step of love. Meantime, you know, we and I can make up excuses. I'm, I'm busy. I'm an introvert. 
You know, whatever the excuses are, we can, we can cling to them. But man, I wonder, like, how good are we at implementing the truth of the scripture? Like, what are we busy doing? I think most of us, we work similar hours. What is the rest filled with? Is it Netflix, YouTube, playing games, reading? You may say, oh, no, I read. <laughs> I am reading theology books. But what if I told you, according to 1 Corinthians 13, that all of our theological knowledge, all of our reading will be meaningless if it doesn't lead to love? All of our knowledge of who God is and what he's done, all of our knowledge of the scriptures, all of our dissecting of the texts, it, are, it is meaningless if it doesn't lead us to love Jesus and to love like Jesus. How are we really doing when it comes to asking good questions about our Bibles? Good questions like, what does this say about me? What does this say about God? Who is this written to? Who is this written by? How does it apply to me? Now, the second way Philip imitates the ministry of Jesus is to answer the questions that person, that person is thinking through. Number one, that requires that we live among the people that we're intending to reach, that we actually know the people we are wanting to see come to faith and love them. Because if we're not around them, we won't hear the questions they're thinking about. We won't, we won't know the concerns they have. And yeah, we may be doing our best to answer questions that we dealt with 20 years ago, but at the same time, they don't really care. Right? And what, what Philip needs here are two things. It requires boldness and knowledge. Yeah, he definitely needs knowledge because, because he basically needs to point them to Jesus. He needs to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within him, as we see in 1 Peter 3. But also, he needs boldness to speak up when it's time to speak up. And generally, my, my feeling has been that the modern day church has been really good at answering questions that no one is asking. Like for instance, if you go right now and you go into the you know, apologetic section of theology, apologetics is defense of the faith, right? If you go and read books on apologetics, you'll find a lot of titles and a lot of talks and a lot of lectures happening right now that are about postmodern thought and rel truth being relative. You know, basically, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, let's, you know, let's live our lives. And there's a lot of arguments being done to, to throw that idea down and say, no, there's one ultimate truth, and that's God's truth. Now, that was fine 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. But we don't live in that society anymore. Like, for instance, right now, it seems to be that we're dealing with a society that is all about cultural orthodoxy. It is all about being culturally sensitive and holding to the right opinions, and if not, you're canceled or you're, you know, something else. And so we've kind of moved away from that, but the church is still really good at ans ask, you know, answering the question, how does the truth of God speak to postmodernism? The, the only problem is just no one's asking those questions anymore. Like we're, it's almost like we're, we're answering questions that the people aren't really asking. They're not really concerned about that. And I wonder if that's because we have, we have not pitched our tent among the people we're reaching. You haven't been close enough to actually hear what questions they have, what concerns they have. 
You know, and maybe because, because of that, we're just hoping to scream our message out there and not to be, you know, following the ministry of Jesus to be incarnational in our ministry. But Philip is not just giving a disembodied message. And he, he's seeking, you know, to pitch his tent among the people he's reaching. He's close enough to actually hear the question of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we move on to the last area of our text today. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when it came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Asotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Man, this is like one of those texts like, did I just read about a Jesus portal that he used? He just transported to some other place. Man, that's awesome. I would love to, to experience that. Now it says that Philip dove straight into pointing towards Jesus. He told him the good news about Jesus. Like one of the things I want to underline for us today is what the world needs from us, brothers and sisters, is the good news of Jesus. It doesn't need good life tips or life hacks. It doesn't need inspirational talks. It doesn't need good suggestions. It doesn't need our political opinions. It needs the good news about Jesus. It doesn't need to hear what you ought to do, but rather pointing to the fact that Jesus has done. And out from that grows the doing. Not messages, you know, mostly filled with moralistic, therapeutic deism, but rather pointing to Jesus. And hear this, you know, brothers, hear this sister, the good news of Jesus, it's fairly simple. Yes, it, it, it is deep. It is profound. It, its implications are endless. But at the same time, the good news of Jesus, telling someone about what Jesus has done, is fairly simple in saying, hey, you are, in, you are a sinner in need of a savior and the only Savior that can save you is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We don't need slick apologetics. We don't need complex theology. We can all point to Jesus. And the third way that Philip reflects the ministry of Jesus is that he opened his mouth and he applied the good news to his own question. Now, as much as I, I think it was like St. Francis of Assisi that said, uh, you know, preach, no, 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 uh, tell them the good news. Now, what is it? Like, uh, tell them the good news, but preach if necessary or something like that. It was, does anyone know that quote? Yeah, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Right? And I, I, I love that quote because it points to the, you know, a lack in the church of living out the gospel and living for the gospel. But at the same time, I think a lot of people have used that as an excuse to, oh, I'm not going to say anything. You know? like I, I talked to this one guy who was like talking about missional photography. You know? And he, he wanted to tell people through pictures, artistic pictures. And I'm like, I don't know how this points to me being a sinner in need of a great, you know, like this rustic fence. You know? uh, but it's like, yeah, I'm just living the gospel, man. 
and never really opened his mouth about it. Like, one of the things, yeah, we have to live in light of the gospel, we have to reflect the love of Jesus, but we also have to open our mouth like Jesus did. What do we get from this eager brother in the faith? How does he respond to this? He says, here's water. Is there anything getting in the way for me to be baptized right now? He is eager to follow Jesus, and one of the first and easiest steps he can take is to identify with Jesus in his death and rise up as a new creation in him. This, like if you're a follower of Jesus, this is one of the easiest first steps you can take. Jesus told us to do this, to baptize in his name. He wants to identify with Jesus as he goes beneath that water, being buried with Jesus. And when he rises up, he wants to show the newness of life found in Jesus. But the reality is that baptism, if it hadn't been for what God is already doing in the Ethiopian brother's life, it would have been meaningless. He would have gone into a water, a puddle, whatever it is, and rose up a, a wet sinner. You know, There's nothing about the water. It's not like, oh, this is, a, this is water in Jerusalem, you know, so it must be holy water. There's like, there's nothing about it. It can be Icelandic water. It can be any water you like, you know. But here's the thing. It only, it's, it's a sign pointing to an inner reality. And, you know, imagine a road sign pointing to a, a Disney world in Iceland. And the sign was there, but there was no Disney world. That sign would be rather pointless, right? It wouldn't point to anything, anything bigger than itself. There wouldn't be any bigger reality. Well, that's what baptism does. If it doesn't point to what God is already doing in your heart, it is meaningless. But Ethiopian eunuch, he goes through this because it does point to what God is doing in his life. And Philip, he doesn't stand in the way, but offers him to be baptized before he leaves to go back to his home country. One of the things I, I appreciate so much about Philip is number one, he preached Jesus from the Bible. Remember, it says, and beginning with the scriptures, he told them this scripture, he told him the good news. Like, one of the things that's weird is that at this time, they only have the Old Testament. He's not going to Romans. You know, he's not going the Roman road or, you know, anything like that. Like, he, he's, he's going through Old Testament prophecies, probably going to Psalm 22. Isaiah 53 is like, obviously, this kind of layup that he has right there. Uh, Genesis 3, he's, he's preaching Jesus from the Old Testament, but he's sticking with the scriptures. It says, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So beginning with this scripture means there are more scriptures involved. Now, I'm, I'm encouraged by this because there are so many versions out there of Jesus, you know, you've got the Muslim version, you've got Jehovah's Witnesses version, you've got the Mormon version, you've got the Hindu version, you've got the person who says, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious version of Jesus. And, and what, what it all seems to, to basically do is create a, an idea of Jesus that basically agrees with everything you agree with. It just so happens to be that he's basically, he's basically you, just divine. And so... Here, Philip is preaching Jesus from the Bible. Like, for instance, just the last couple of weeks, for instance, we've had the state church start their ad campaign for Sunday school for kids. And if, I don't know if you've seen this. I don't know how, how it's gone with the crowd, who's foreigners living here. But anyways, it, it created this sort of surprising backlash. I was, I was not expecting that. I was expecting mostly people to be like, oh, this is awesome, you know. 
But what happened is they posted a picture where, where Jesus was basically, he had a beard and makeup and breasts, and so he was kind of trans Jesus or something like that. And, and people were just generally like, what's going on? But Philip stuck with the scriptures. He stuck with the Jesus of the scriptures, only pointing toward, towards what God had revealed. And, and it got me thinking, you know, that the only Jesus, the only version of Jesus is the true Jesus. And he is the only one that is sufficient to be my savior. Any version of Jesus I create in, in, in my own mind is not going to be worthy uh, to be my Lord or sufficient to be my savior. Only the Jesus in the word of God is worthy for our life, worthy of us bending our knee and following him, worthy of leading us. The only Jesus worth dying for, the only Jesus worth living for, is the Jesus of the Bible. But then following the baptism, it seems that God supernaturally teleports Philip to another city. He continues to preach Jesus wherever he went until he settles down in Caesarea, where he continues to preach Jesus at this time. Now, first off, like I said, experiencing Jesus' teleportation sounds awesome. Second, I am so encouraged by his faithfulness. It's almost like no matter where you drop this guy down, he just won't shut up about Jesus. He goes everywhere he goes, he talks about Jesus. So he's like, all of a sudden, probably very confused. You know, I was baptizing someone on an empty road, and now I'm in this random city. Uh, but I guess I'll just stick with the same thing. I'll tell people about Jesus. Now, after this chapter in the book of Acts, we don't hear much about Philip anymore. It switches to over to another character called Saul, who, uh, twist plot, uh, the, plot the, the plot thickens, his name will later turn into Paul. Um, but we, we won't hear much about Philip until Acts 21. And I, I just want to read this verse because it says about Philip, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He's the only guy in the New Testament who's actually given the title, the, the evangelist. And well, I think it's pretty obvious. He, he, you know, he continued to copy the ministry of Jesus wherever he went. He pitched his tent among the people everywhere he went and telling them about people even when he settled down in Caesarea. And I think for us today, we just need to focus on this. What can we learn from Philip? We as disciples of Jesus Christ are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus by being ready to draw near even to those who pull away from us, to offer answers to questions they are asking. Remember, not just answers to any questions, but they are asking, and to show how good news of Jesus applies to their life. I wonder how God used this unnamed Ethiopian brother to affect his people in his country. Possibly he had access to royal bloodlines and regular citizens. Who knows what happens after this? Did he go back there? Did he preach as Philip did? Did he pitch his tent among his own people? As I think about him being there, you know, possibly because of Queen Sheba's witness from 1 Kings 10, I think of how many churches exist and souls have been saved because he went as a follower of Jesus and pitched his tent among his own people and told them the good news. Like, 
Do you remember the ISIS video with the 10 guys in the desert and orange jumpsuits being beheaded for Jesus? Um, that they were Coptic Christians. I had never heard, like, I had never heard of the term Coptic Christians, so I was like, what is a Coptic Christian? So I started looking at Coptic Christianity, and it's basically a denomination of, of Christianity with some, there's some theology there that I definitely don't agree with, but I was just struck by this powerful picture of someone dying for his faith while screaming out Jesus. Um, and one of the things that I learned about Coptic Christians, that they're mostly based in Egypt and Ethiopia, and they at least claim that they exist because of this Ethiopian eunuch. You know, that they trace their lines and their heritage back to this Ethiopian here in the gospel and coming back to Ethiopia and started this Coptic Christianity. Of course, this is mostly speculation, but all that to say we never know the impact of us just being faithful to tell one person about Jesus and what that would lead to. Like here and now, we may see one puzzle piece and we don't see the whole picture, but we don't know what we're being, like what God is allowing us to be a part of. Now, as I, as I hope you've been challenged by the faithfulness of our brothers in our text today, I hope that you would ask yourself the question, how will Iceland believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear of him if no one preaches? And how can I proclaim Jesus? Well, that's the reason we read the Great Commission every Sunday as we go out. Our hope is not just to gather, but also to scatter well. Our hope is that our worship is not just limited to a Sunday morning, but rather it is all day, every day, every week. We want to lay down our life. We're still a follower of Jesus on Monday. Just FYI, if you didn't get the note, you know, that's, that's how it is. That's the Christian life. We want to imitate the ministry and love of Jesus. Love your neighbors enough to know what questions and concerns they have. Don't invite people to approach you, but take the first step. And lastly, communicate the good news of Jesus to them in their circumstance. Tell them how Jesus applies to what they're going through right now, to the thoughts they're having right now. Now, the Ethiopian brother was reading Isaiah 53 when Philip approached him. And I can't help but wonder if he continued reading on in Isaiah, because in chapter 56, maybe 10 more minutes of reading, he would have, you know, I, I imagine Philip being there, he's just been baptized, he's all wet, sitting in his chariot, and all of a sudden, he keeps on reading, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, he gets to this passage. You know, I, I just wonder what he's thinking. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let that the eunuchs say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Here's why I, I, I kind of go to this, you know, and, and we're wrapping this up right now. But because because of the state church and their ad campaign, I, I understand what they're trying to do. I understand it's trying to lower the threshold to hopefully get more people into the churches, to make Jesus more diverse, more palatable, um, more just open for marginalized people. I, I get that that's their view of how they do that. But here's the thing. 
The reality is, as Isaiah 56 reminds us, God does not need to be changed to be available for all people. He is available to all people just the way it is. That's, that, that's why we are here on a rock in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. <laughs> like we, our ancestors did not worship this God and here we are today worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are worshiping the God of Israel because he is available to all who seek him, to all who come to him and repent and put their faith in him. No matter your class, your skin, your former life, your sins, turn to Jesus and be filled with hope. Like he will take us as we are, but he loves us enough to not let us stay that way and we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Will you today, like our Ethiopian brother, confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? If you're not in here and you, you, know, you haven't made that, if you're in here and you haven't made that decision, that, that is the greatest gift I can give you. There's nothing else I could give you. I could, I, there's nothing earthly I could give you here on earth that would be more valuable than Jesus Christ and the hope that is in him. And I hope and pray that you would surrender your life to him and experience joy to the fullest. And remember, Christian brother, Christian sister, that's what we remember every single day, every single Sunday. As we go into our week, as we scatter, we want to remember that Jesus Christ is our true hope. That just like this food nourishes our body, gives life to our body, the broken body of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed for us, that is what gives us eternal life, eternal hope. It renews our strength. So as we go into this week, let's do what we do every week and remember what Jesus has done. So let me just pray for us as we go and we will sing a song. During that song, when you're ready, come and, and take a cup and take a piece of bread and let's remember Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for how you've used regular people as instruments of grace and mercy in your hands. We thank you for the faithfulness of our brother Philip and, and the questions that arise from that. And I pray that that would spur us on in our faithfulness. I thank you for the faithfulness and the Ethiopian brother asking these awesome questions and leading to surrendering his life to you and being baptized uh, into this family that we belong to. God, I pray that that would also spur us on as we seek to be humble like him, to be willing to be taught and teachable, but also to ask good questions when it comes to your word and applying it to our life. May our questions, may our reading, may our study of who you are and what you've done cause us to live in light of it. May we glorify you and God for for, for us in here who confess Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior as we remember the broken body of Jesus and his blood shed for us, may we be encouraged as we go into this week. May we remember the founder and perfecter of our faith. May we remember Jesus Christ. God, in every difficulty that we may face this week and in every joy that we may face this week. May we remember that there's never such a day that is so difficult that your grace is not sufficient and there's never such a day that is so great and good that your grace is not needed. So God, as our, as our gathering may be ending here today, may our worship continue throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.